You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to spend the uh, next few weeks taking a look at the life of Joseph. And with any first sermon in a series, there's some, some foundational things that I, I really need to, to get on the table to kind of set the table for the next few weeks. In chapter 37, uh, we begin a long narrative of 13 chapters. Uh, in the last of ten divisions in the book of Genesis, there's ten divisions, uh, good, clear divisions in this book. And uh, they're divided. Take a look at chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. If you go through and you look, you'll find that phrase 13 times in the book of Genesis, but ten times there are clear divisions. And this is one of those divisions. It's the last one, and this is a long one. And it's given us the life of, of Joseph, and I want to spend a few weeks taking a look at it. Um, my kids, all three of my kids, like to play chess, um, and I am terrible at chess. And they often like to play me in chess because they all three know that they can beat me pretty easily in chess because I have no clue what I'm doing. I can't remember what piece does what and all the different moves. They're constantly having to correct me. And, and with Hannah in particular, she's always three or four steps ahead of me in uh, chess especially. And I don't know if you've ever observed a, a game of chess where you have maybe a master chess player and maybe a, an amateur. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to behold because that master chess player has been playing for so many years and has so much experience and so much wisdom that it is not unusual for him to be, or him or her to be four, five, even six moves ahead in the game. And depending on what the amateur's move is in the game, they've already formulated three or four steps on how they can pretty much end the game and win. And that's probably why I'm terrible at chess because I can't remember all the moves and, and I'm focused on one move while my opponent is focused on three moves ahead. And the reason I wanted to use that illustration this morning is that because the amateur in that chess game has the ability to make his or her own choices. They're, they're choosing which pawn to move and they're choosing to the best of their ability and the best of their knowledge to play the game. But the wisdom of the master chess player is in control of the game. Make no mistake about it. The master player is guiding the game exactly how he or she wants the game to go. The amateur has the ability to make the choices, but ultimately the master of the game is guiding the game to his or her own ends. Now the reason I want to give you that illustration is because over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the sovereignty and the providence of God. Because there's two extremes when we talk about the sovereignty and the providence of God. The providence of God is God is actively engaged in your life. He's working in your life. He, he's working in circumstances. He's working in choices. He's, he's working even in nature. Currently, as I speak, God is at work in His creation. So there's two extremes that people tend to gravitate towards that's been debate, debated for centuries. On the one extreme, 
is that we're, we're nothing but a, a group of, of robots. Everything's been predetermined. In other words, God has already predetermined your entire life, and you're just, you're just walking through the steps, but God has preordained every single aspect of your life to where nothing more, we're nothing more than a, than a bunch of robots or puppets that, that God is controlling every aspect of our life. Well, on the other extreme of the scale is that God created the cosmos. He spoke it into existence, Psalm 33. says that he spoke the world into existence and everything that is, that is came by the word of his mouth. But after God spoke the universe into existence and created the earth and everything in it, that God disconnected himself from creation and that we are in control of our own life, that, that we are completely autonomous. And God has no directives in our life, no commands in our life. He wants us to live by His Word, but ultimately we are in charge of our life and in complete control. That's the opposite extreme, that God is not sovereignly and providentially connected and working. So those are the two extremes, and I would offer you that both of those extremes are not supported by Scripture. So, so our task over the next few weeks is what I want you to see is through the illustration and through the story of Joseph, I want you to see how Joseph and even his brothers that we'll look at today are making choices, and those choices are dishonoring to God. But yet, as they're making those choices, God is guiding all the events to accomplish His purposes and His will. And to me, that is amazing and beautiful. And what it does is it, it, it provides a tremendous amount of hope that when you're in a deep, dark place, when life is not turning out anywhere close to what you thought it would be like at this stage in your journey. To know that God has been working in the life of Joseph, and you see, even in the minute of details, how God is working in these pages of Scripture, what it does is it gives us incredible hope to know that, that if God is doing that in Joseph's life, and God hasn't changed, then, then maybe God is working in my life the same way, and I'm just not seeing it. We live, we live very distracted lives. How terrible would it be to live 15, 20, 30 years as a Christ follower and never recognize the hand of God working in our life? We're busy. We're running around to and fro. We have our attention on these little screens that we carry in our pocket. And, and while we're distracted, we're getting angry with God because of the mess we're in. Instead of seeing God working in those circumstances and God moving things to His purposes and His wills, what we tend to do is in the mess that we're in, we tend to get bitter and angry and even angry at God because God hasn't stepped in and hasn't brought the comfort that we think we deserve. So we begin to demand it. And when God doesn't do what we think He ought to do, then we get angry with Him. To be able to get our arms around what Joseph is dealing with, I've got to give you a little bit of history here. It's going to help us a lot as we walk through this. And this family, Jacob's family, they, they have just come back into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, if you, were, you know anything about Jacob's life, you know that Jacob and Esau, his brother, there was a lot of tension between them. Because, because Esau believed, and rightfully so, that, that Jacob had stolen something very important from him. And so Jacob flees and runs away. And, and as he's fleeing and running away, Jacob gets in all kinds of situations and circumstances. 
and he has to suffer some because of the choices that he's made. Well, while he is away, he falls in love with the love of his life, Rachel. And through a series of events, he, he wants to marry Rachel, and a guy by the name of Laban kind of misleads Jacob, and he ends up connected to Rachel's sister Leah, which he really didn't care a lot for, but ends up married to her. And between Jacob and Leah, they have some sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and one daughter named Dinah. And then eventually, Jacob begins to get involved with Leah's servant named Zilpah, and he has two more sons by her, Gad and Asher. Well, as you know, Jacob eventually is able to marry Rachel, and Rachel gives birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And then Jacob gets involved with Rachel's servant, Billah. And through Billah and his involvement with her, he has two more sons, Dan and Naphtali. Now, I think we can all agree that Jacob's been pretty busy. He's been really busy during those periods in his life. So now Jacob is now heading back to Canaan. With this big family, all of his servants, all of the animals that he's been able to gain under Laban. He's a wealthy man. But he's got a problem first. He's got to deal with Esau. He's got to face Esau. And it's in this major moment in the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau meet. And through God's sovereignty and God's design and God's will, everything works out. They're able to go back home. And by the time we get to chapter 37, they've been back in Canaan now for some 10 years. All the sons are with him. By this time in chapter 37, Jacob's wife, Rachel, has passed away. Isaac, his father, has passed away. So when they get back into Canaan, they just pick up where they left off. They, they begin the farm. They begin to tend the animals. They begin to shepherd. They begin to raise their families. When you're reading anywhere in the Old Testament, you have to keep something in the back of your mind all the time. That's the covenant. The covenant promises. And that was a covenant or agreement that God made with Abram, Abraham eventually. And he says to Abram, basically he says to Abram, listen, I'm going to separate you from the rest of the world, and you're going to have so many offspring, it's going to be a nation, and I'm going to bless this nation, and I'm going to give you some land that's going to be your land where you can raise your family, and this is where you're going to live, and your descendants are going to live, and they're going to be so many that it's going to be like the sand on the ocean, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham, you've got to understand something. I'm going to keep my promises. Even if you, even if you decide to do some things that are against my will. I am going to keep these promises and I'm going to make sure that every promise that I've made to you are going to be fulfilled. By the time that Jacob and his family return back to Canaan, God is still fulfilling those promises in the life of Jacob and these sons. Every time I read the Old Testament, one of the things that causes me difficulty, and I can tell you there's been many times I've had to sit back in my, in my study and and. and try to reconcile in my mind how it is that these patriarchs, these, these ones of the Old Testament, both male and female, who were great leaders, accomplished much in God's kingdom, have so much issues in their life. And I, and I struggle with the idea that here they are, they're, they're doing the will of God, and it's sometimes they're doing the will of God in spite of themselves, yet at the same time they're making some horrendous, horrendously bad, evil choices. And then, of course, anytime I ponder that in my mind, God says, well, what about you? 
I mean, you've not always walked with me either. You've been born again through my son, through the blood that he shed on behalf of you. You, you. you are in the new covenant. You've been redeemed, adopted, justified. And the question comes up in my mind, not so much about why Jacob does the things that he does or why these brothers are going to do the things that they're going to do. It then comes home to me and it says, how in the world could God continue to use me when I've dropped the ball so many times? And you know the answer to that question? It's the same answer for Jacob. It's the same answer for these brothers. It's the same answer from page to page in Scripture. It's the love and the grace of an almighty God that I never deserved. He's so patient with me. What you're going to see in, in today's text and the ones that follow it are, are people making their own choices. But God is moving the whole plot and the whole storyline and all the details. God is moving this along to accomplish His purpose and His will. Just like the master chess player who's guiding that game to accomplish the end of winning the game, God is going to absolutely keep His promises and God is absolutely going to have His way. And God chooses to allow us to be part of the journey, which is just mind-blowing to me. Let's take a look at chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So here's Jacob back in the land. And they're back to just doing life, raising families, raising a farm, supporting themselves. And all these boys are out there working in the field. Look at verse 2. These are the generations. or This is the account of Jacob and his family. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of them to their father. Now, I find that very interesting, and that verse just jumps off the page because it reminds me of my childhood. So I have a sister who's six years older than me. And anytime my parents would go out to eat with their friends, there'd be two conversations that would happen before they left the house. Number one, my mom and dad would tell my sister, you're in charge. And I just have to suck it up. It is what it is. She's older. She gets to be in charge. I didn't like it. And she often took advantage of that. But she's in charge. But then there would be another conversation that my sister wasn't part of. And it would go something like this. It usually came from my mom. My mom would pull me off to the side and says, now listen, we're going to be gone for a little while. If, if your sister has any of her friends over, if she's on the phone too long, or she does anything, let me know. Now, I'm pretty certain my sister never knew that conversation happened until she hears this sermon. But nonetheless, that conversation happened. So, yes, she's in charge, but I, I'm, the, uh, I'm the spy that my mom had kind of supplanted in the situation. And trust me when I tell you, I did my job with excellence. <laughs> excellence. I would take notes. I would write it down. If she's on the phone for 30 minutes, trust me, my mom's going to know about it. If some guy comes over and drives up and she's out in the driveway talking to that guy, oh, I'm taking, I'm taking notes. If I'd have had a phone, I'd have been taking pictures. So I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do it well. Guess what, guess what Joseph has been given the task to do? The exact same job. Now, in Joseph's day, Reuben, the oldest, would have been the one in charge. When they go out into the fields and work, if Jacob is off doing his thing and there's, the father's not out there, then Reuben, by default, was in charge of the other brothers. But guess what Jacob has done? Jacob has set up Joseph to be the spy. 
And Joseph is doing his job well. He comes back, and we don't know what was going on, but Joseph saw something while they were out in the field, and he comes back, and like a good little spy, he gives a nice long report to Jacob about what all the other brothers are doing. Now read on. Let us what happens. Verse 3 is a key verse. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. That should uh, prompt our memory because Jacob is doing exactly the same thing that his father Isaac did. If you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know the story, let me, let me give you a, little, a real quick background. So Jacob's father was Isaac. His mother was Rebekah. And, and Rebekah gets pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. And, and these, there's a whole big story of when these boys are born and and there's some promises made by God. But nonetheless, if you go back to chapter 25, verse 28, you'll find there where Isaac loves Esau and Rebekah loves Jacob. So there's this division in the family where, where one parent favors one child, the other parent favors another child, and it just turns into an absolute disaster. And here we are years later. Isaac has already passed away. Rebekah has already passed away. And what is Jacob doing? Jacob's doing exactly the same thing he saw modeled in his dad, Isaac, by favoring one child over the other. Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest of the brothers. Now, why is that? I'll tell you why. Because Jacob loved Rachel more than anyone else. And that love that he had for Rachel is evident in the text over and over again. There's all kinds of conflict in Jacob's household because of the love and the favor that he showed to Rachel. And that love that he has for Rachel spills right over into the favorite love of this favorite son, the firstborn son of guess who? Rachel. Well, it gets a little worse. Let's keep reading. So Joseph is favored by Jacob. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now, that, the Hebrew behind that, that text, the robe of many colors, is, is a very difficult phrase. And it's very hard from that side of it to kind of understand. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down as best I understand it. So Jacob makes, has someone make Joseph a robe. Joseph is the loved, favored kid. So Jacob, out of that love and out of that favor, has... Joseph, a coat made, and apparently this coat was made out of different pieces of cloth. It was very colorful. But here's the key part you got to get. Joseph's coat had sleeves on it. Now that's important. Here's why it's important. The brothers are out working in the field. Let's read on a little bit. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So I want you to get this picture. Here's the brothers out working in the field. They're tending the animals. They're taking care of the farm. Where's Joseph at? Well, Joseph is off in a corner watching them, making notes, and going reporting back to Jacob all the things they're doing wrong. And then one day, Joseph walks into the field, and he's got this big old beautiful coat on with sleeves down to the wrist, this colorful. And I, I would imagine, I'm, I'm just guessing here, that Joseph is completely oblivious to what's going on. And he's out there probably modeling this coat for the boys to say, look what dad got for me. Isn't this awesome? All the while, those brothers hate Joseph. It has sleeves on it, which is interesting. 
The brothers working in the field, they also have a robe on, but their robes don't have any sleeves. You see, if you're working in the field and you're working with animals, you're feeding animals and cleaning up for, from animals and all this, you don't want sleeves down. You want to be able to be free to be able to work. And these, these brothers, they had some coats, but they didn't have sleeves. And their coats were dirty. Their coats were probably filthy where they're taking care of the animals. You see, in their day, to have a coat with sleeves on meant that you were a ruler, that you had clout, you had significance. And what does Joseph do but walk into the field with a coat on that is beautiful, has no stains on it. He's flaunting it in front of the brothers, and that coat just happens to have sleeves on it, indicating that he's of a higher caste than the rest of the brothers. Just confirming what the brothers already know. The brothers already know that he's the favored son, and now there's a coat to signify the reality of that favor. Can you just imagine the conversations that are happening with these brothers? They could not even speak kindly to him. Whenever Joseph would show up, they would, just, they would just let their malice and their hatred for him show. They were hiding it at all. So their words towards Joseph were just poisoned with hatred because he was the favored son. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. Now, now Joseph, again, I think, I think Joseph is oblivious. <laughs> Because at some point, you think if Joseph knows the hatred that they've got for him because they think he's the favorite son, at some point, Joseph would stop talking. Joseph would leave the coat at home. But no, Joseph just keeps talking. And he says, hey, guys, come around. i got to tell you about the dream I had last night. It's awesome. He says, we were out in the field and we were putting sheaves together, these bundles of straw. And I, I had this dream, and you, ha you guys had all your bundles, and I had mine, and, and all your bundles come over and bow down to the ground before my, before my sheave of, of, of straw. Isn't, isn't that awesome, guys? They don't think it's awesome. So they say, well, let me get this straight. So you're the favored son. You have the coat of many colors that puts you in a place of rulership over us, and now you're having dreams about us bowing down to you? Well, some time goes by, guess what? He has another dream. And again, Joseph doesn't keep it to himself. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream. He told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow before you? The difference in this dream than the previous one is it only considered the brothers with the sheaves. But in the next dream, it includes Jacob and his deceased wife, Rachel. And, and Jacob is taken back by it. He says, you mean that in this dream that, that you think that we're all going to bow down to you? Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. But notice this last phrase, that his father kept the saying in mind. So instead of rebuking Joseph, it's almost as though Jacob sits back in his recliner, his chair, on his donkey, and he begins to contemplate what's going on here because in Jacob's day, dreams, especially among God's people, were God speaking to the people. So Jacob is wrestling with the idea that, that maybe through these dreams, God is saying something to Joseph, and it appears as though Joseph is being told that he's one day going to reign over the family, even Jacob himself. 
So in those moments, in the fine details, God is working. Even in the bad choices, even in the hatred that God is prompting Jacob to consider the fact that, that maybe God is working in this, maybe God is doing something in my son Joseph, and, and maybe, just maybe, these dreams mean something more than just upsetting his siblings. Maybe it's more than just a 17-year-old's imagination run wild. I think we need to pause here for just a moment and talk about the dangers, parents, of, of favoring one child over another. I think, we, I think we need to deal with that. Because what you're going to see from this point on, and, and even through the book of Genesis, you're going to see over and over and over again this, this favoritism and, and the problems that it causes. What you need to see in this narrative right here in chapter 37 is the fact that, that this all began with Jacob, for whatever reason, choosing to favor Joseph over the rest of the kids. Obviously, it had to do with Rachel. But as, as Jacob does this, what it does is it plants a seed in the hearts of those other kids. And that seed that gets planted in their heart is envy. And envy can take you to some dangerous, awful, terrible places. What you're going to see is this envy that these brothers have towards Joseph is going to fester and it's going to grow and it's going to take them to consider some things that is incredibly evil for these brothers to contemplate in their heart. Children, adolescents, teenagers, parents, you know where they, you know where they begin to form ideas and understanding about God? You know where that starts? It starts in your home. So when a child gets to the place where they're ready to be they already consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. They get to that age where they're able to understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit's drawing them, and they're ready to make a commitment to Christ. Their understanding of God, who God is, His grace, His mercy, His love, His patience, His kindness, and yes, even His judgment, that is being formed in those children as they've seen you and how you've parented and how you've loved and how you've shown mercy and how you've shown care. In other words, if you have favored one over the other, and I'm talking about intentionally favoring one child over the other, when they get to that place where it's time to consider Jesus Christ and put in their faith in Him, it can be a huge, huge barrier. I can tell you of conversations that I've had with teenagers and young adults where they say, well, I would put my faith in God. I would trust God, but I just don't believe that God loves me. I just don't believe that God could love me the way that you say that He can because I've messed up. I've made some mistakes. I've done some things wrong, and I'm pretty sure that I've got to fix all that stuff before God will love me. And I begin to ask questions. Do you know where they got that idea from? The way they were treated when they were 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. It's because they never measured up. It's because they were never as good as the brother or the sister. They never saw unconditional love in you. They begin to believe that that kind of love is only for select people, not them. So when they hear someone say that God loves them unconditionally, they have a hard time grasping it because they don't have never had an example of unconditional love in their home. That's what the other brother or the other sister got. I didn't get any of that. You see, I wasn't the favorite one. So folks, this is serious. I understand, parents, listen, I understand that there may be 
one of your children that you, you gravitate towards. Maybe they love sports or maybe they love dance and you love sports or you love dancing. You kind of gravitate towards that kid a little bit more and there just seems to be more of a connection there. That's where it can, can, that's where it can begin. Next thing you know, at Christmas, the favorite one is getting a whole bunch more presents under the tree than the others. You don't think it's a big deal. Boy, those siblings do. And then something gets planted in their heart called envy. And that envy can turn into hatred. And there are families today that are split up and won't talk to one another because of a seed of envy they got planted in their heart when they were eight years old. See the damage that it's causing in this family. See the damage that it caused to Jacob and Esau. The brokenness, the hurt, the hatred. And notice where this leads. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Now Shechem is 50 miles away from where Jacob and his family are dwelling. So they have taken the flocks 50 miles away and are taking care of the flocks there. Joseph is not with them. Joseph is with Jacob. And the brothers are out in the field taking care of the flocks. Notice what happens. Jacob says, come, Joseph, I will send you to them. And Joseph said, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So Jacob, once again, uses Joseph, his favorite son, to be a spy on the brothers who are 50 miles away. So let's, let's go to Shechem now and let's, let's kind of think and imagine what's going on in the minds of the brothers. Here they are taking care of the flock 50 miles away from home. And the first question they're wondering is, where is Joseph? Oh, we know where Joseph is. He's the favorite. Joseph's not out here having to work. Joseph's not out here in the hot sun. Joseph's not out here having to take care of himself and feed himself because he is the favorite son and he is with dad. They already know he's the favorite. They are, they've already seen the coat paraded in front of them over and over again. Can you imagine the conversations the brothers are having? That envy has turned into hatred. That hatred has turned into more jealousy. That jealousy has now turned into something where they've got to act. They've got to do something because it's not fair for us to be out here tending the sheep while Joseph is at home with dad. So Joseph leaves on this journey. He has no idea where the brothers are. He, he has no idea where his brothers are tending the flocks. So he takes off and he starts heading towards Shechem and you've got to understand that Shechem in this area that he's in is a wilderness area. There's, there's very few people there. So, so Joseph is just on his own. He's 17 years old, and he's trying to find his brothers with the flock out in the middle of this wilderness, and he's not having a lot of luck. He's walking all over the place. He can't find them. And there's this stranger that happens to notice this young man walking all over the place trying to find something or somebody. And a, man, and a man found him, verse 15, wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? He says, I'm seeking my brothers. Now, it's at this point, we would like to think this is a coincidence. Okay, so Joseph is looking for his brothers. He doesn't know where they are. And all of a sudden, he runs into this random stranger who just happens to know the very brothers that he's looking for. Now, you could count that off as coincidence, but I think there's something else going on here. 
He says, I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please, where they are pastoring the flock. And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, which is another 14 miles away. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, you'll find time and time again where some random man or woman shows up in the narrative, and you think that it's just some kind of set of circumstantial information that's not really important. But the fact is, this is incredibly important because it was God's will that Joseph find his brothers. It was God's will that Joseph make his way all the way to where his brothers were. And part of God's will and part of God's plan and part of God's work was to bring some stranger into Joseph's life. Not coincidence, folks. Not dumb luck, folks. This is the hand of God working in the background to make sure that Joseph fulfills the will of God by meeting his brothers down in the wilderness. Isn't that amazing? In this little detail... How many details of God's work in your life are you missing? In your day-in, day-out life and all the busyness and the work and the activity and the family life and all that you got going on, could it be that there are no coincidences or dumb luck? Could it be that that God is, is working out even the most minute details in your life to bring you to the place where you fulfill His purposes and will in your life? Could it be that the darkness you've been in, the valley you've been in for years, could it be that some of the details that keep coming up in that life and that walk that you've got is actually God working? You've just been discounting it? Is it coincidence that at the moment you're brokenhearted and the tears are pouring out of your face that you turn the radio on and it just happens to be that song? Or you have a deep, deep need of prayer. And all of a sudden that friend from your small group or from church calls you up and says, hey, I don't know why, but I just felt like I needed to call you. Are you doing okay? Coincidence? No, not coincidence. God moving and working even in the smallest of details. So here they are. Here's the brothers in the field working. And as they've been talking and as they've been working, their anger has been growing and growing and growing. They've been, the hate has been growing and growing and growing. And what do they see coming in the distance? Well, a coat of many colors. Here comes Joseph. He's still at a distance. They can tell it's him because when they look, they see the color shimmering in the sun. They know who it is. Now, you've got to understand, this envy has turned into hatred. This hatred has grown into more jealousy and more envy. And it's been this like loop of feeding itself. And you see, envy is always going to act. Envy is always going to manifest itself in some kind of evil action, always. Because you know what's been happening with these brothers? Same thing that happens to me and to you. They've been having a long conversation, not only with each other, but with themselves. They've been feeding that hatred inside of them for a long time now. And just at that moment, coming over the hillside is none other than Joseph, smiling. He's found his brothers. But notice what the brothers begin to say. They saw him afar off before he came near to them, and they conspired against him to kill him. 
Now, you may be thinking, wow, I, I can never get to that place. Oh, I could never get to that point. I mean, yeah, I've got some stuff. I've got some issues with coveting. I've got some issues with envy. I've got some issues with jealousy. And I, I'm dealing with them. I've got it under control. But it'll never take me to this place. You better think again. You, you, can, you can destroy another person's testimony by gossip. That's why the Bible speaks about gossip as being a grievous sin. You see, what we can do is, we may, it may not manifest itself in us putting our hands on another human being and taking their life, but we may take their testimony, we may take their credibility, and what we'll do, the tool we'll use, is gossip. Anytime you have the opportunity, you're going to tell someone else about how awful that person is so that you can push them a little lower and elevate yourself a little higher. That's really what it's about. So envy has turned into hatred, and hatred has now turned into a murder plot. Their own flesh and blood. Here comes this dreamer. Notice how they're using their language, their anger, their bitterness. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits or cisterns. In this area, water and rain it would only happen for a few months, a year. So they would have to collect the water in these hewn-out stone cisterns, and the water would collect. And when they would bring their animals out, they would have water to be able to feed the flock and support themselves. And at this time, the, the cisterns were getting kind of dry. So their, their idea is, is to murder their own brother because they hate him, because he's the favorite, and throw him into one of the cisterns. But it just so happens that Reuben catches wind of what's going on. Notice what they said here. They said, Then we will see, say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Yeah, we'll show him who's boss. We'll show him who's in control. We'll show him that we are in charge. Reuben catches wind of it. Reuben being the oldest, says, Wait a minute, guys. We cannot kill him. We cannot take his life. We can't do this. Now, why would Reuben do that? It's because Reuben is filled with grace and mercy. No, I think it's because Reuben is concerned because he's going to be held accountable for what happens to Joseph. I think, I think Reuben is just covering himself, covering his behind here. He says, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but we'll throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Now Reuben's thinking that if he can convince the brothers to just throw him in a pit, maybe later on that night, Reuben can circle back around, rescue Joseph, and maybe take him back home. And maybe Reuben can become the favorite. Well, while Reuben is away, we don't know where, where Reuben goes, but Reuben goes away for a little while, and the brothers sit down to have a meal. So they take Joseph, they rip the coat off of him because they hate that coat. They hate everything that coat represents. That coat is a representation of Jacob's favoritism upon Joseph. So we're going to rip the coat off of him and we're going to throw him in a pit. And you know what the brothers do? The brothers have a meal. Not only will envy take you to murder, take you to hatred, it'll take you to some incredible callousness and cold indifference. Here they are. The brothers are having a meal together. They're probably laughing, telling jokes, probably making fun of Joseph. And Joseph, their own flesh and blood, is in this pit. They probably beat him up before they threw him in there. And then they see coming in the distance a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are many not traders. The Ishmaelites were in charge. The Ishmaelites were a group of people who were wealthy people, 
descendants of Ishmael. And they have a group of people under them called the Midianites who are trading and doing their dealings all over the Middle East. And here, just at this particular moment, now, again, you could count this off as coincidence, right? All of a sudden, while they're there and Joseph is in the pit, all of a sudden, here comes some Midianite traders. And the brothers begin to think among themselves and talk among themselves. Verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 26. Then Judah, the fourthborn, Judah holds a lot of prominence in both the Old Testament and the New. You see, Jesus is going to descend from the tribe of Judah. So here's Judah. He has an idea. He says, hey, what profit is if we kill our brother and conceal his brother? In other words, Judah says, hey, if we just kill him, we're going to miss out on some profit here. We, we, can, we can get rid of him and at the same time profit financially. Wow, what a good brother. So they come up with this plan that they're going to sell Joseph as a slave to these Midianites. Now, they don't take his life physically, but they, in essence, do take his life because as a slave, he will no longer be in control of his own life. He'll be enslaved to someone else. The brothers could care less. They want to get rid of him, and what better way to get rid of him than to get 20 pieces of silver for giving up their brother? It's like a win-win for Judah and the other brothers. And they're all like, this is an awesome idea. So as the Midianite traders pass by, they draw Joseph up and they lift him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They, the Ishmaelites, took Joseph to Egypt. Jump down to verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of favor, the captain of the guard. Here's what you're going to see next week and weeks to come. It was God's will and purpose that this 17-year-old boy end up in Egypt. Now, I'm sure that Joseph would have preferred to not only know that on the front end, but also to have a lot easier road to get to Egypt. Because this kid has been sold by his own brothers. At one point, he almost got to the point where he was going to be killed if Reuben had not intervened. But it was God's plan and God's will that Joseph end up in Egypt. So in all the pain and all the suffering and all the hatred and all the envy and all the anger, God is still at work to bring about His purposes and His ends. God has been working all through Joseph's life in this short frame of time. In spite of Jacob's failure to love all of his sons the same, God is working. In, in, in Jacob's failure in giving Joseph this coat to symbolize his favor and stir up the hatred in the brothers, in spite of all of those bad choices, God is working. In spite of the fact that the brothers are about to kill Joseph, God uses Reuben to intervene. In spite of the fact that he's now been sold as a slave, God is still at work. Now, it could have been easily at this point that Joseph just disappears off the pages of Scripture. But thankfully, he doesn't. We're going to know the rest of the story. We're going to see God's continued word. But that verse 36, the Midianites had sold him. That is exactly what God wanted to have happen, is that Joseph would end up in Egypt. I can't tell you why. We'll have to figure that out and see that in the next few weeks. But here's what I want you to see. Is that the providence of God 
Through His love, through His wisdom, through His grace, through His mercy, through His patience, is governing over the affairs of these brothers, over Jacob, and especially over Joseph's life, to accomplish God's purpose and will. And if God cannot, has not, will never change, that God is still at work. Yes, even in your life. Yes, even in the storm you're in. Yes, even in the brokenness. Yes, even when your family has turned your back, turned their back on you. Even when you've gone through the pain of a divorce. The pain of a breakdown in your marriage. A pain in, in the kids running away in the evil and all kinds of things that you don't want to participate in. God is still working in the life of His children even in the smallest of details. The providence of God, He's working, governing the affairs of the universe in your life, through the political structures, through, even through nature, to accomplish His ends. God allowed the brothers to kidnap, to contemplate murder, sell Him as a slave, Joseph has been through an incredible amount of difficulty, and it's not over yet. He's got more pain that's coming. He's, got, he, he's, he's going to be the recipient of some people who treat him poorly and unfairly, and yet Joseph does not become a victim. My goodness, it seems as though we, we live in a society now where we're all victims. And then in our victim state, we, we get angry with God because, God, I don't see you working anywhere. And I would imagine that God sits back and says, I can't imagine you don't see what I'm doing because I'm working in all areas of your life. And the reason you don't see it is because you're blaming Him and you're angry with Him and you're mad at Him and you're demanding that your life get comfortable when God's goal for your life is not necessarily comfort. Few things we'll we'll close here. Maybe maybe rather than blaming God for your pain, your trouble, take a moment and see Him working in the details all around your life. Joseph is going to see that. Joseph maybe doesn't see it now, but he will. When we get to the end of the story. Joseph is going to make a statement where he affirms the fact that, that God has been working all through all of this brokenness. He's not there yet. I wouldn't be there at that point either. We know the end of the story. Joseph at this point doesn't know. So maybe we should pause and see him working. You see, this is why quiet time with the Lord is so vitally important. That when you can step out of the cell phone and the internet and the email and the daily steps and craziness of life, if you can set aside some time and step out of that craziness and get along with God, what you're going to see and what you're going to recognize is God is, in fact, working in your life. And I guarantee you, you'll walk out of your house with a different perspective on life in the mornings if you can set aside some time to hear from Him and to see how He's working. So let's stop blaming Him. Let's start looking for Him even in the details of our life. Also, maybe rather than believing in coincidence or dumb luck, we, we, we use those terms a lot, don't we? Well, I, I just got lucky. Well, it was just a coincidence that I ran into somebody and, man, they just had exactly what I needed to hear. 
Can we just stop using those terms? And can in those moments when those things happen, when God's moving in our life, we don't, we don't cause it coincidence. We don't call it coincidence or dumb luck. We stop and we say, thank you, God. I see. I see your hand working. Thank you for that. Praise you. Oh, I love you, God. Thank you. You've not forgotten about me. You're working, and that's, that's evidence of your work.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.